0: Welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Osk Edmondson, and this week, Richard Madeley reads his diary in the magazine, including recollections of his Sunday lunch with George Michael. Daniel Johnson shares a touching tribute to his late father, former Spectator columnist and New Statesman editor, Paul Johnson. And Melinda Hughes asks why BBC Radio 3 is dumbing down. Up first, Richard Maidley.
1: All is grist that comes to a colonists' mill. The late Alan Corran once wrote that if he heard a screech of tyres in the road outside his house, he rushed out, notebook in hand, because you never know where the next 300 words are coming from. I find that the Anniversary Almanac can be a reliable source of copy during thin times, my particular favourites being 40th, 50th and 60th anniversaries, because they're all potentially still in living memory. I'm already eyeing up anniversary options for 2023, and look, here's an early heads up. Expect a deluge of words to mark the 60th anniversary of JFK's assassination. Just as everybody remembers where they were when they heard Princess Diana had died, so those who were sentient on 22nd of November, 1963, can recall the exact moment they learned of the president's death. For some, it was career-defining, as in the case of a London newspaper editor that I once worked for, Bob Hutchins. Bob longed to work for a big American title and back in the 60s he bombarded US papers with job applications. Finally he got a bite from the Los Angeles Times. If he could show up in the editor's office in 48 hours exactly he'd be given a month's trial. Bob was on a plane from London the next morning but bad weather delayed him and he landed at LAX barely an hour before deadline. He threw a fistful of dollars at a Checker cab driver, skidded away and lurched up outside the Times office with five minutes to spare. Rushing across the vast lobby to the lifts, he was dimly aware of an atmosphere all around him. Sounds of sobbing, bowed heads, hugging. No time for that, he emerged onto the executive floor and stalked straight into the editor's office. A beehive-blonde receptionist blocked his way, eyes red-rimmed. "'Mr Hutchins?' ''I'm so sorry, your meeting with the editor's cancelled. You've heard what's happened. Our president's been shot dead.'' It never even crossed Bob's mind that she meant Kennedy. He thought she must be talking about the president of the corporation that owned the LA Times. But before he could react or say a word, the editor himself burst out from his office. ''Are you Bob? Have you heard? Our president's dead.'' ''Sniper shot him in the head. Jesus' hate's Christ.'' Uh, "'Yes, yes, I, I, I've just been told. How shocking. Uh, "'Excuse me, but, um, what was his name?' "'What immediately followed,' Bob said, was mostly a blur, "'but he found himself back on the pavement two minutes later. "'Oddly, they didn't give him the job.' "'I get on well with Susanna Reed, my co-host, on Good Morning Britain, "'but we crossed swords this week over the weather, "'or rather, about January. "'I loathe January.' Dark and cold and wet and dreary. Can't we just cancel it, I asked grumpily. What, she said? It's lovely. New beginnings, longer days, shorter nights. And then, a few hours later, Judy and I arrived in Cornwall to find a host of golden daffodils nodding in our paddock. And I thought that Susanna, along with Wordsworth, might have a point. I know exactly who gave me the cold cough sinusitis upper respiratory tract nightmare super cold infection that I've had now for 6 weeks. Maybe you suspect the person responsible for ruining your Christmas too. I suppose childish acts of revenge are out of the question, but I am reminded of a private eye cartoon in the middle of an earlier winter play. Two men are sitting together both dabbing their noses with handkerchiefs. One, uh, I seem to have given you by cold. I hope you don't mind. The other, On the contrary, I resent it with a force of feeling that I'm not verbally qualified to describe. So what I'm going to do is purchase a ledger, especially for the purpose, inscribe it with your name, and refer to it from time to time in order to keep alive the grudge I will hold against you until the day I die. I see white lotus sex god Theo James is going to play George Michael in the biopic of the singer's life. Theo is a fantastic actor and I think he's going to do George proud. George happened to be a neighbour of ours, and after he'd donated a ridiculous amount of money to a Christmas charity that Judy and I had just launched on this morning, we invited him round for Sunday lunch so that we could thank him properly. No carbs, no carbs, I'm on tour, he instructed as he crossed the threshold. George Michael, in our front hall. Later, he nicked a roasty from everyone's plate. A much,
2: much-missed man.
0: That was Richard Maidley. Next, Daniel
2: Johnson. Paul Johnson, who was a columnist for The Spectator from 1981 to 2009 and who died last week, did not merely write history, he helped to make it. His first book, The Suez War, published in 1957 with an introduction by Nye Bevan, documented the evidence that eventually led to the resignation of the Prime Minister, Sir Anthony Eden. In Buckingham Palace, six decades later, Prince William startled him by asking about Suez. Afterwards, my father asked, ''Who was that well-informed young man?'' A demonstration against the government over Suez was also the occasion for him to get back together with the brilliant and beautiful Marigold Hunt, whom he had once invited to the Ritz, but stood up. I was only the first of the results of that reconciliation, soon to be followed by my brothers, Cosmo and Luke, and sister Sophie. Many of my contemporaries have vivid memories of visits to our home in Iver. There my father presided over idyllic Sunday lunches, improvising quizzes for us children and entertaining the Worsthorns, Frasers, Howards, Stoppards, Amesses, Gales and countless others with conversation and jokes that flowed and gurgled like a bubbling stream. When the talk turned to politics, he could be combative. We children didn't like that. Aged about six, I tackled him. Daddy, why do you go on and on about Mr Wilson? Why do you go on about the Daleks, he replied. The Daleks are important, I said. After lunch, there were walks in Langley Park, culminating in the hunt for sixpences, hidden in a giant hollow tree where, he claimed, the great train robbers had stashed their loot. My recollection of him taking me to London on my seventh birthday is a joy. Riding in a taxi, visiting the new statesman office as the editor's son, then to Bertarelli's for lunch, where he introduced me to Vicky, the great cartoonist, who was not much taller than I was. He seemed to know everyone. When I was puzzled by my part in a school play by J.B. Priestley, he suddenly said, ''Let's ring old Jack up and ask him.'' Next minute... I heard an aged voice with a Yorkshire accent saying, Oh, yes, Time and the Conways. Damn good play, that. What's the problem? My father had the good fortune to live in a time when journalists were enjoying a kind of renaissance. He liked to say that he had met every British Prime Minister from Churchill to Blair and every American president from Eisenhower to George W Bush. It may even have been true. The apotheosis of the journalist as politician came only in the next generation, when one of his former editors at The Spectator entered Downing Street. In old age, Paul had his share of recognition, most notably when he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from George W. Bush. His CBE was for services to literature. The citation is apposite. None of the proximity to power would have meant much if he had not been the master of English prose that he was. Stephen Glover, an exacting critic, wrote that he was incapable of writing a dull sentence. Posterity is a harsh judge of journalism, but his best work will still be read when his detractors are forgotten. Paul was no stranger to dangerous liaisons, but he had one that proved to be lifelong, with Cleo the muse of history. As a popular historian, he was often belittled by less popular academics. It is true that he relied on printed sources, but few could match the breadth and depth of his erudition. So Noel Malcolm tells me that as a reviewer he was staggered by the range of material deployed in this vast body of work, particularly as my father never used researchers. Quote, He is at his best when angry, unquote, declared an anthology of New Statesman writers in 1963, apropos of his notorious review of Ian Fleming's Dr No, Sex, Snobbery and Sadism and, having made his mark as an angry young man, he morphed into an angry old one. The public Paul Johnson presented a pugnacious face to the world, yet when he let down his guard, the private man was loyal, magnanimous and deeply vulnerable. Like the apostle after whom he was named, Paul had more need of redemption and forgiveness than those who already fancied themselves saints. Hence he held fiercely to his faith the traditionalist Catholicism of which his mother was his exemplar. He prayed, if possible in church, every day of his life. He relied heavily not only on faith but on friends and family. His inner demons tested all three. Drink made him a monster. Infuriatingly, even in its grip, his work rate seldom slackened. Only the realisation that, unlike Churchill, alcohol was taking more out of him than he took out of alcohol drove him to give it up with rare lapses in his last few decades. Yet Paul also had a capacity for love that was inexhaustible. Friends of both sexes and of all ages were treasured all the more if they could not follow his political peregrinations. He was generous to and inordinately proud of the burgeoning tribe of children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Though Paul gave Marigold ample grounds for not standing by him, their marriage endured for 65 years, the flying buttress which held up the entire cathedral of his work. He was also generous to young journalists whose careers he encouraged, to students at Taunton College to whom he donated his art library, and all those from princesses and prime ministers to friends in need or in despair who found their way to his door. To him, they were all equal before God, and so in his esteem as well. After I had followed in his footsteps to Magdalen College, Oxford, to read history, he treated me too as an equal. Now it was I who introduced him to men he admired, the medievalist Sir Richard Southern, Professor Friedrich Hayek, the raucous Norman Stone. Later still, when our careers overlapped in the world of journalism, he would greet me cheerily with, What news on the Rialto? He made sure that I never felt overshadowed. Only at the end of his life, when his world had shrunk into his beloved library that became his sick room, did my dear old father feel able to say, I love you very much.
0: That was Daniel Johnson. And finally, Melinda Hughes.
3: In March, Alan Davy will step down as the controller of BBC Radio 3. His role over the past eight years has been huge. Not only has he overseen programming and strategy for Radio 3 and BBC orchestras, but he has also championed access to contemporary music and focused on forgotten past composers, many of whom are female, or very impressive. But there's no escaping the fact that, under his watch, there has been a general dumbing down of programming. Each year, the BBC Proms finds a new way to diversify its output, from proms based around video games, to rap, to an Ibiza-style dance party. Even more egregiously, two years ago, Radio 3 rebranded its late-morning show Essential Classics – Presenter Ian Skelly was dropped and the three-hour show has become nauseatingly pedestrian, indulging requests for easy listening, folk and jazz, which don't do any favours for the competent presenter Georgia Mann. The changes were described by one newspaper as a catastrophe. The programme is now so inane it makes me want to rip my digital radio from the kitchen shelf and smash it through the window. If you want to hear The Entertainer by Scott Joplin, followed by the theme from Jaws and incorrectly pronounced Italian arias, that's what Classic FM is for. The new kid on the block, Scala Radio, also indulges in easy-listening, digestible classics. And the BBC should resist the urge to serve us the same smorgasbord of schmaltz. I'm afraid it's got to the point where I just can't listen to Radio 3 anymore, and I feel guilty, like I'm abandoning an old friend. For years, I've been awoken by Petroc Trelawney's warm, assuring voice. Not in person, I hasten to add. And I've been a guest on In Tune many times, sitting opposite the twinkly Sean Rafferty. Instead, I've started turning to Radio France, a station which does not serre la soupe, a wonderful expression meaning dishing out crowd-pleasers. Programmes such as La Preuve Par Z, presented by Jean-François Zigel, play a broad spectrum of classical music, much of which I never hear on Radio 3. What's more, Zigel is a lively personality with a great sense of humour. He's often on French national television, where, as stated on his website, he defends classical music in all its form with humour and passion. I can't remember the last time I saw a composer on British primetime TV. Am I being a snob? Probably, but I don't care. I simply don't believe that persisting in lazy, easy programming is the way to get more young listeners into classical music. The truth is, increasingly, young people just aren't listening to radio of any kind. Some 88% of over 55s listen to the radio each week. Only 50% of under 25s do. And even if more younger people are tuning in, that doesn't mean that classical music needs to be dumbed down for them to enjoy it. According to research by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra and the British phonographic industry, there was a spike in zoomers enjoying Bach and Mozart during the pandemic, using streaming services such as Deezer and Spotify, not the radio. I keep thinking of the words of Immanuel Kant, who wrote that classical music allows listeners to experience a glimpse of the infinite and the divine through the structure and harmony, and this experience is essential for the cultivation of human spirit. So why, when I turn on Radio 3, do I get the sense that the BBC is embarrassed, so ashamed to be intellectual? Shouldn't our nation's broadcaster do better? I recently saw the film Tar, starring Kate Blanchett, about a fearsome contemporary conductor. Some controversial subject matter aside, I was impressed. The script was full of authentic musical terminology and didn't dumb down a thing. The result was Utterly gripping. The critical success of the film proves you don't need to simplify everything. Sam Jackson, the former executive vice president of Global Classics and Jazz for Universal Music Group, is taking over Radio 3 in April. So please, Mr Jackson, stop serving the soup to us. You won't bring in new young audiences by being patronising. If you're not careful, you'll not only lose your identity, but many more once loyal listeners may switch over to Radio France.
0: And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week.